Episode 2 of By Our Own Hands. Once Mrs. O'Donnell visited me. She had done much to help my mother, even though they had once been bitter enemies. Mrs. O'Donnell had been the housekeeper, but mother had been given the title when we returned to the Glebe house. This caused a great enmity to rise up between them. It lasted for years, but once mother began to suffer greatly from the consumption, Mrs. O'Donnell's heart softened. At the end, Mrs. O'Donnell was running the household for mother. When she visited and brought me tea, I made her sit. I could tell that she was embarrassed. I wanted to tell her that I knew that she had been told that I was not to be disturbed. I knew how fiercely she cared for me. She sat and placed her hand over mine. Her eyes were swollen. I could see that she had been crying. She and mother had grown close, especially over the last few years. Mother loved you, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell began to softly cry. I loved her, too, as if she were my own sister, she said. I smiled. The two of you did not always love each other, I said. She looked up at me and began to softly chuckle. Ah, tis the truth, Aoife. We were once sworn enemies, she said, smiling and looking away. I know, I said softly. Her gaze returned to me. I held her gaze before looking down. I know that Mr. Adair will try to influence Mrs. Matteron to promote me to mother's position. It is something I do not deserve, as you well know, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell stared at me. Her smile faded. It is true. I do not deserve to be the housekeeper. You do. Mother would agree if she were still here, I continued. You can't refuse the honor, she said. No, but I can request a position at the castle. Mr. Adair would not refuse, I said. I forced a smile. I did not want to return to the castle, but I knew that Mrs. O'Donnell deserved this promotion. The promotion would relieve her of some of her more strenuous duties, which were beginning to take a toll on her aging body. Her daughters would be granted good positions in Mrs. Matteron's household. Her future and theirs would be secure. She was a second mother to me. I had to do this for her. You can't go back to that place, she said, shaking her head. Yes, I can, and I will. Mr. Adair will go easy on me, I said. Yes, that he will in memory of your dear mother, she said. I am only thirty-three. I could still marry again. I will need a dowry. Mrs. Matteron is kind and generous, but she cannot afford to pay me more than she already does. I can easily make more at the castle. In a year or two, I will have enough to marry again, I said. I forced a wide smile. Mrs. O'Donnell considered this and nodded. True, dear, you are lovely to look at, too. You could marry again. You will surely need a dowry. Your mother, bless her heart, could not have left you much, she said. I nodded in agreement because mother had left me very little money. Mrs. O'Donnell and I sat for a long time, holding each other's hands. I knew that I had done what was best, but a feeling of dread rose in me as I recalled the castle. I tried my best to suppress it. Mrs. O'Donnell had arranged mother's wake and funeral. Mrs. Matteron had paid for both. 
Mrs. O'Donnell told me that Mrs. Matterin would probably be ridiculed for paying for a Catholic funeral. I knew that she would, but I also knew that she wouldn't put much stock in the opinions of those that would do so. I had asked Mrs. Matterin to speak with Mr. Adair on my behalf. Mrs. Matterin had frowned and had even tried to persuade me to change my mind, but I was resolute. It was so difficult to insist on returning to the castle because I did not want to go, but I knew that it was the only way to ensure that Mrs. O'Donnell was promoted. If I stayed, Mr. Dare would bully Mrs. Matterin into submission and Mrs. O'Donnell would remain in her lowly position. Mrs. O'Donnell was the mother I had not yet lost and I was determined to do what I could to help her. Less than a week had passed when Mr. Dare returned and visited Mrs. Matterin. He arrived for afternoon tea. I was expecting him because I knew that he would learn a mother's death and call on Mrs. Matterin. I had only recently resumed my duties. I had insisted on doing so sooner than Mrs. Matterin advised in a hope that Mr. Adare would visit. I knew that if I was seen, it would be more difficult for Mr. Adair to refuse. He might recall the tender affections he had once felt for mother. He might even feel guilty. Regardless, I knew I stood a better chance eliciting his sympathy if he saw me in person. I saw him enter the drawing room. It was then that I first saw Dr. Foxlow. He followed Mr. Adair. I watched him from afar until I had to enter. I could clearly see the doctor's face. I let my eyes linger for too long because he suddenly looked in my direction. I blushed crimson and backed away. I went to the kitchen and gathered the tea things onto a tray. I collected myself and returned to the drawing room with the tray. I felt eyes on me as soon as I entered. I looked at the doctor who was watching me intently. My cheeks flushed again. I walked to the far side of the room where a table stood. I began to arrange the tea things on the table and soon felt someone standing behind me. I turned around and was surprised to see that it was Mr. Adair. He was clearly uncomfortable. He looked down and then directly into my face. I grew flushed. He smiled faintly. Aoife, I am so sorry to learn of your mother's passing, he said in a whisper. I looked down and nodded. Thank you, sir, I mumbled. He stared at me for a few moments and then walked away. I watched him momentarily. I looked in the direction of the doctor and saw that he was still watching me. I turned and finished arranging the tea things. I hurried and left the room. Mrs. O'Donnell arrived with another tray. She passed me as I was leaving. I rushed to the kitchen. I knew I had more to do, but I found myself standing in the kitchen. I stood there for several minutes. My volition was suddenly suspended. Mrs. O'Donnell returned and admonished me. She took the tray of sandwiches to the drawing room. Later that evening, Mrs. Matterin knocked on my door. I opened the door. Good evening, Mrs. Matterin, I said. Good evening, Aoife. She paused and sighed before continuing. 
I have spoken to Mr. Adair as you requested, and he would like for you to return to the castle. She hesitated before she continued. Aoife, you can change your mind and tell him that you would prefer to stay on at my house. It's not too late. Thank you, Mrs. Matterin. I know that I am welcome in your household, and I am very grateful for that. I still think that I should work at the castle for a time, I said. She sighed again and faintly smiled. You could probably find a lad without a dowry, she said. I blushed and smiled. Good night, Aoife, she said. I left for the castle the very next day. The first face I saw arriving was the doctor's. We watched each other without saying a word. Until today, I had not exchanged one word with him. Now he is sitting across from me and speaking with me. I take a deep breath. I know that I shouldn't test him, but I need to. I need to know why I am here. Have you stayed much longer than you intended to? I ask. Yes, I was going to stay for a couple of weeks, and it has already been nearly three months, he says. Recent events have probably been a factor, I say in a quiet voice. He stares at me. I hold his gaze. I appear more confident than I feel. He finally looks away. Yes, that is true, he says, looking down. He looks up and returns my stare. Mrs. Adair has asked me to speak with you. I stiffen and hold my breath, waiting for him to continue. She told me that you are the only one I can speak with. I try my best to appear unmoved and answer him impassively. I don't understand. It seems you are the designated storyteller, he says, with a broadening smile. I stare at the doctor in disbelief. Is it my imagination, or do his eyes dance when he says this to me? What does she hope to accomplish by having me tell him stories? Am I to confess all because my inquisitor is charming and seemingly interested in me and mine? I will not be played like a fiddle, but I will let him think that he commands me. I know how to play that role. I can see that he is watching me carefully for a reaction. I return his smile. Mrs. Adair has asked me to stay on permanently as the estate's doctor. She believes that the nearest doctor lives too far away, he says. I nod in thoughtful, silent agreement. Mrs. Adair has insisted that I speak with you to learn of the history of this region so that I can better understand it. She believes that if I can better understand the history of these parts, I can better understand the people. She is adamant that this is necessary. She is just as adamant that I need to speak with you, he says. He pauses and leans forward conspiratorially. She tells me that you are true. No, no, excuse me. Rather, that you are true to yourself. She tells me that she has this from a reliable source. It seems that she trusts you to give me your honest opinions as well as an accurate account, he adds. My smile fades for a moment. I quickly recover myself. I hold his gaze. He leans back and eyes me for several moments before he continues. It seems that you have made quite an impression on her. I will do my best, sir. I would not want to disappoint Mrs. Adair or waste your time. 
I am very surprised that she believes that I am the person most suited to give you an account of this region, I say. Why are you surprised, he asks, a smile playing at the side of his lips. I ignore this and answer him in a matter-of-fact tone. I was not born in this region, Derive. My family does not hail from this region. I can only give you very general information and tell you of my experiences. I am not sure how helpful I can be, I say. Mrs. Adair was certain that you could provide me with an invaluable insight into this region, he says. I look down. He clears his throat. The door opens and Peg McSweeney enters with the tea tray. She sets it on a table near the window. I watch as the doctor gets up and walks towards the table. He kindly dismisses Peg when she starts to pour the tea. Thank you, Mrs. McSweeney, he says as he starts to make our tea. She looks surprised. He smiles warmly at her. She looks at him with bewilderment and leaves the room. She glances once more in my direction. I give her another small smile. Dr. Foxlow turns to me. Do you take milk and sugar, he asks. Now it is my turn to suppress a smile. Yes, please. He brings me a cup of tea. He places it on a table next to the sofa. I have confidence in Mrs. Adair's judgment, and if she believes that I need to speak with you, then I do too. Do you feel at ease speaking with me about your life in Derivay, he asks. I hesitate before answering. I take a sip of tea. He seats himself. Yes, I say. From where do your people hail, he asks. We are from Queens County. I moved here as a small child with my mother. It was shortly after my father died. My family worked for Mr. Adair, I say. Do you have any extended family here in Derivay, or are your relations all in Queens County, he asks. He takes a sip of his tea. I can see that his hands are neat. His clothes are expensive but slightly disheveled. He is a gentleman but a careless one. I have no family in either place, I say. He looks at me with surprise. He does not speak. I know that he is waiting for me to explain my previous statement so that he does not need to ask any inappropriate questions. I smile at his politeness. He returns my smile. My parents do not hail from Queens County, I say. You were born in one county and raised in another. The county of your birth is not the county of your parents' birth. Is that correct, he asks? Yes, that is a part of my legacy, I say. He stares at me. I take another sip of my tea and continue. I was born in 1852 on Mr. Adair's estate, not far from Bally Britis, in Queens County. My family had arrived several months earlier. My father had worked for a cousin of Mr. Adair, who arranged for my father to work at Mr. Adair's estate. The grand house on Mr. Adair's estate was called Belgrove House. When my family arrived, Mr. Adair was in a process of making extensive renovations to Belgrove House. He needed skilled, strong laborers, and my father became one of them. The lodgings offered to my family consisted of a small cottage. 
My father's wages were better than the average laborer, but we were still very poor. When we arrived, my mother befriended a young girl who lived with her infant son in a tiny cabin. She had been shunned by the other tenants, including her own nearest relations. The girl was no more than fifteen years of age, and her name was Mary Moore. Her son, Sean, had been born at a wedlock. She had worked at Belgrove House until her condition became obvious. She was turned out, but by some means she was able to afford her meager subsistence with no known source of income. Everyone whispered that the child had been fathered by one of the higher-ranking servants at Belgrove House or even a laborer that did not have to afford his own lodgings. Her plight was dire, but it could have been far worse, especially in those times. Her own kin had disowned her. They emigrated not long after my family arrived. When mother learned of the girl's situation, she insisted that the girl and her infant son live with my family. My father agreed. Mary and her son Sean became a part of my family before I was born. My parents soon found that their fortunes improved. Mr. Adair found even better work for my father. Better work brought better pay. My family was still poor, but they were not nearly as poor as they had been when they first arrived. Mr. Adair's favorite servant was his stable master, Mr. O'Dowling. He trained and cared for Mr. Adair's beloved horses. Many believed that Mr. O'Dowling had fathered Sean because he was known to have a roving eye and an interest in very young girls. People said that Mr. O'Dowling was unfaithful to his wife. They said that she was a long-suffering saint. People also believed that the favoritism shown to my family was the indirect result of Mr. Adair's favoritism towards Mr. O'Dowling. My parents' kindness towards Mary and Sean was perceived, first and foremost, as a kindness to the master's favorite. That is why they found favor. They were rewarded, or so it was said. My birth was followed by death. Shortly after my birth, Mary Moore fell ill. She caught the dreaded fever, and it took her quickly. Mr. Adair insisted that Sean move into the O'Dowling's cottage. This was considered scandalous and an outrageous insult to Mrs. O'Dowling. One of our neighbors even threatened to thrash Mr. O'Dowling. Mr. Adair defended his decision. My family was told that the O'Dowling household did not have any sons, and Sean, with neither father nor mother, needed a family. He could follow in Mr. O'Dowling's footsteps and learn how to be a stable master. Furthermore, we couldn't be expected to raise a child that was not our own on our limited income. Mr. O'Dowling's income was much greater than my father's. I was barely a month old when Sean was sent to live with the O'Dowlings. I remember none of it, but my first clear memory was of Sean. We were both five years of age. We were playing in the stables. Sean had a jumping rope, and he was showing me how to use it. We were both shrieking and laughing. 
Each time I managed to jump without tripping, he would shout approval. Jump, jump, Aoife, he shouted. I remember that he tried to grab the rope from me, and I ran away from him. We were both hysterical with laughter. Then Mr. O'Dowling entered the stables. We both fell silent. I was terrified of Mr. O'Dowling. I cannot remember why I was, but I definitely was. Mr. O'Dowling was tall, fat, and always seemed to have a scowl on his face. He glared at Sean. I turn my back and leave you to your duties for one hour, and I return to find you playing a game, he shouted. He marched over to me and yanked the jumping rope from my hand. He yanked it with such force that the rope burned my hand. I screamed. Sean looked at me with alarm and grabbed my hand. My palm was bright red. I started to cry. Sean looked at Mr. O'Dowling with hatred. Mr. O'Dowling shoved me aside. He did so with such force that I fell to the floor. My crying intensified. He began hitting Sean repeatedly with the jumping rope. Sean did not cry out. He curled into a ball and put his hands over his head to protect himself. Even at my young age, I knew that Sean's reaction was not done out of instinct, but instead it was done out of habit. The realization of this made me scream with frustration and anger. Stop, stop, I screamed. The door to the stable suddenly opened and Mr. Dare walked in. He looked at us. All three of us stopped and stared at him with wide eyes. We were all motionless. I was terrified. I had seen Mr. Adair at a distance, but I had never been this close to him. His face was contorted with anger. He walked resolutely to Mr. O'Dowling and grabbed the jumping rope. He then swung back and whipped Mr. O'Dowling. Mr. O'Dowling began to protest. Mr. Adair, please, sir, he said in a voice muffled by his own attempts to protect his head. I ran to Sean and sat close to him, holding his hand. We watched as Mr. Adair continued to hit Mr. O'Dowling. Mr. O'Dowling's pleas became groans. He hit him again and again. Finally, Mr. Adair stopped. He threw the jumping rope on a stable floor and marched out of the stable. Once he left, Sean and I ran out of the stable. We ran to my cottage. We were breathless once we reached it. We looked at each other with wide eyes. I was the first to speak. I like Mr. Adair. We both started to laugh. I do too, Sean said. We entered my family's cottage. We were very excited and told Mother what had happened. She was stunned. Mother walked over to Sean and gave him an embrace. She pulled away from him and looked intently into his eyes. You need to return to the stables. If you don't, there will be more trouble. Aoife will visit you tomorrow, I promise, she said. She gave him a reassuring smile. He looked at me and smiled before he left our cottage. Ma, I don't like Mr. O'Dowling. He is cruel to Sean, I said. Don't ever say that to Mr. O'Dowling, Mother said. Why not, I asked. I looked at Mother defiantly. If Mr. O'Dowling is cruel to me, Mr. Adair will beat him, I added. 
What Mr. Adair did, he did for himself, she said calmly. Mother sighed. Ah, love, how can you understand, she added. She leaned down and cupped my shoulders in her hands. Her face was stern. It is best for Sean if you do not anger Mr. O'Dowling, she said. Why was Sean beaten, I asked. Sean is both a source of pride and a source of shame. You will understand better when you are older, she said. Mr. Adair doesn't like Mr. O'Dowling any more, I said. Mother looked at me more sternly and then gave me a faint smile. Mr. Adair likes Mr. O'Dowling and Sean. He likes anyone who cares for his horses, she said. I don't understand, I said. You will in time, she said. She was right. In time, I did understand, but it took a very long time. Mr. Adair left the following day. He was often gone for weeks at a time. The reason for his absences would soon be known to all of us. He had fallen in love. The object of his desire was not the woman we know as Mrs. Adair or any woman at all. It was a piece of land. He was enchanted. It took him three years before he had finished acquiring his Donegal lands. I remember exactly when he had done so, because of an event that would forever change my life. The doctor is carefully watching me. He has listened intently at all that I have said. Perhaps I have said too much. Was that event the death of your father, he asked. I look down. It is still difficult for me to speak of it, even though it has been twenty-five years. Yes, I say. How did he die, he asks. He doesn't apologize for his boldness. Strangely, I don't mind. He had an accident while working at Belgrove House, I say. This happened when you were, he asks, his voice trailing off. I was eight years of age, I say. What became of your mother, he asks. She was offered work at Belgrove House. Shortly afterwards, we were moved to the Glebe House, I say. The Glebe House, he asks? Yes, the rector's house was used by Mr. Adair before he built Glenvay Castle, I say. The doctor nods. I am certain that he regrets having asked me about my family. My tea has grown cold. I still finish drinking it. I have kept you for too long. I am sure that I have tired you. I would like to call on you tomorrow, he says. I nod in agreement. Would you like to stay for dinner, he asks. I know that Mrs. Adair probably did not have that in mind when she summoned me. I shake my head. No, thank you, sir. I should be returning before Mrs. Matterin worries. She knows that I walk to the castle, I say. I can have you driven home, he says. I know that I should refuse this offer too, but I am tired and hungry. I nod in agreement. 